It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning we're going to continue to look at the wonderful prayer of Jesus. This is one of the most uh, significant portions of Scripture that we have in the Bible. And, And last week we saw that Jesus starts this prayer by praying for himself, and now he's going to transition from praying for himself to praying for his disciples. And, you know, if you remember, Jesus' prayer for himself was really all about glorifying the Father and glorifying himself through what he would accomplish and do at the cross. And something important to understand about Jesus' work on the cross is that Jesus knew when that work was finished that he was going to leave this world. That when he finally did what the Father had given him to do, and that was kind of culminated and finished at the cross and the resurrection, that he was going to ascend back to the Father in heaven. And he also knew that when he did that, the disciples were going to be left alone here on this earth as he went to heaven. And this knowledge is something that Jesus has just got done communicating to the disciples in chapter 16. If you remember, Jesus shared some specific things that would have helped them understand what he was going to do. He says, now I go away to him who sent me, speaking of the Father. He also says, it's your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And the most specific thing that would have made it real clear was, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So each one of these statements would have just helped the the disciples understand, hey guys, I am going to be departing this world and I'm going to be going back to heaven, back to the Father who sent me to this world. And the very last thing that Jesus tells the disciples before he starts this prayer in John chapter 17 is an encouragement to them because he knows, hey, you guys are going to be left in this world as I go back to heaven, but let me encourage you with something important. He says this at the end of chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Jesus just got done telling the disciples that he's going to be leaving this world, and then he starts to pray for himself. And he finishes that prayer for himself by asking that God the Father would glorify him with the glory that Jesus had before he came to this earth. And so he's saying, God, I I want the same glory that I had when I was in heaven with you before I came to the earth. I want to go back to that. I want to have that glory in heaven again. And so in Jesus' prayer for himself, he's communicating that he's going to be doing that. He's going to be going back to heaven to receive that glory that he once had before he left it to come to this earth. And so right before Jesus prays, he's telling the disciples the reality that he's leaving. In his prayer, he's telling them of the reality 
reality that he's leaving. And now as he transitions his prayer from praying for himself to praying for the disciples, really at the heart of it is a prayer with a recognition, the disciples are going to be here when I'm not here any longer. And it's now going to be their role, their responsibility to reach this world for me. Because I'm not going to be here anymore reaching it myself. I'm going to give that to them. I'm going to be calling them to do that. And so as Jesus prays, he's praying with this recognition of he's about to go, but they're going to continue to stay. And in them staying, they're going to have this calling to reach the world for him. And so that reality is going to lead Jesus to really ask for two main things for his disciples. The first thing that he's going to pray for his disciples is that the Father would keep them. And Jesus makes this request for his disciples. He's going to connect three things to this uh, prayer request that the Father would keep the disciples. First, he's going to ask the Father keep his disciples through something. Second, he's going to ask that the Father keep the disciples in two different things. And then finally, he's going to ask that the Father keep the disciples from something. So first, Jesus prays that the Father would keep his disciples. The second thing that Jesus is going to pray is that the Father would sanctify his disciples. And he's going to specifically ask that the disciples be sanctified by something very important. And so as Jesus is about to depart from the world and go to heaven, and the disciples are going to stay in this world as the witnesses, as the ambassadors, as the representatives of Jesus, Jesus lifts up a prayer to the Father and saying, Father, there's two things that these men need desperately. They need to be kept by you, and they need to be sanctified by you. Now, what Jesus prays for his disciples, it should be an encouragement to us because guess what? We are also Jesus's disciples. We are also called as his ambassadors, his representatives here on this earth to reach the world for him. And we're going to see as we look at these verses this morning that the two things that Jesus prays for the disciples that were with him in that upper room are also two things that he's praying not only for the disciples then, but disciples now as well, including you and me. That the Father would keep us through something, in certain things, and from certain things. And that the Father would sanctify us by something very important. And so as we look at what Jesus prays for these disciples, I just wanted to encourage you. Encourage you with the reality that these are things that Jesus has prayed. And as we know from Hebrews, that he continues to make intercession for us. That this is something that is a prayer for you and me from Jesus to the Father. And so be encouraged by that as you seek to live for him in this world. Now, before Jesus gets into, you know, the specifics of these two things that he's going to ask for his disciples, he wants to just share a little bit about what the Father has done among the disciples, what he has done among the disciples, and how they have responded to that in verses 6 through 8. So let's start there and see what we can learn from this great prayer. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
So as Jesus is making this transition of praying for himself to praying for the disciples, before he gets into the specifics of what he wants for the disciples, he kind of reveals, hey, this is what the Father has done, and this is what the Son has done, and this is how the disciples have responded. There's those three things here in these verses. And so let's start with what the Father did. The Father gave the disciples to Jesus. That's why Jesus says the disciples were the fathers and that he gave them to Jesus the Son. And the giving of the disciples by the Father to Jesus, it happened actually during a time of prayer. Jesus spends all night in prayer and he comes to the Lord in that time and he's seeking the Lord to show him who is it that I should choose as my disciples. And the next day he comes and he makes the choice of the 12 disciples that the Father in that time of prayer clearly gives to Jesus and shows him who he should choose. So the Father gave Jesus the disciples, but you know what? He also gave the disciples Jesus. It was the Father who sent Jesus to the world to disciple these specific men, and so they were blessed that the Father sent Jesus to them. And it was also the Father who gives Jesus the words that he wanted to communicate to these disciples. Now, Jesus knew what the Father had given him. And so in this prayer, he wants to declare what he's done with what the Father gave him. And the first thing he declares is, I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now, something important to understand is when Jesus is speaking of the name of God or whenever there's that reference to the name, understand with that in that Greek word, it's speaking more of just, you know, a title or or a name that kind of how we would think of it. It speaks more than that. It's about his character, authority, power, who God is. That's what the name of God is connected with. You know, when we finish our prayers, we often will say, in the name of Jesus. Now, sometimes we might just say that without even really thinking about what we're saying, but really we're meant to say that because we're saying, I'm praying in the authority because the name of Jesus speaks of the authority that goes with it, the power that goes with it, the character goes with it. So when we say that name, it's associated with those things about God. And so when Jesus is saying, I have manifested or I have displayed the name, the character, the authority, the power, who the Father is to the disciples. And so that's the first thing he's declaring is, hey, I've done that. I didn't just talk about it. I manifested. I showed it in my life to them. Second, Jesus declares, I have given to them the words which you have given to me. You know, the Father gave Jesus a lot of things to share with the disciples. And Jesus is saying, hey, all that you have given me to communicate to them, I have been faithful to do that. I've shared what you've given me to them. So Jesus reveals what the Father did for the disciples and what he did for the disciples. But he also reveals, well, how is it the disciples have responded to the fact that the Father gave the disciples to Jesus and gave Jesus to the disciples and that he gave Jesus all these words to communicate to them? How did they respond? Well, Jesus shares with us how they responded. First, he tells us that there are two things that the disciples know. That all things which the Father has given to Jesus are from the Father. And second, they know that Jesus came forth from the Father and they believe that Jesus, that the Father sent Jesus. So they have responded in a great way to what the Father and the Son have done. We're also told that they receive it, that they believe it, that they keep what Jesus gave to them. And this is 
how God wants us to respond when He gives us the word. That, hey, we want to believe what He said, receive what He says, and then ultimately keep it in our lives. And now that Jesus has kind of made this transition, he wants to make real clear who he's directing this portion of his prayer to, because it started with him being directing it towards himself, and now it's going to be directed to the disciples. He makes that very clear in verses 9 and 10. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And so here Jesus is clearly revealing who it is that he's praying for at this portion of his prayer. And he makes it clear, I am praying for the disciples. I'm not praying for the world in a general sense. I'm praying specifically for these men that you have given me. Now, don't jump to the wrong conclusion from this statement that Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for the world. That doesn't mean that he never prayed for the world. He definitely did. It doesn't mean that he didn't love the world. He absolutely did. And actually, even in this prayer that Jesus is praying for the disciples, you can see that he has the world in his mind because he's praying for this because of the reality that he's leaving them in the world to reach the world. And the specific things he prays for them is to enable them to reach the world effectively. And so he recognizes, hey, if I pray for these guys to do what I'm calling them to do, they're going to reach the world with the gospel and the world's going to be impacted and blessed because why? I love the world. So just that fact that he's saying, hey, right now I'm not specifically praying for the world. There's nothing to say that he doesn't love them or want to pray for them. He does. And this prayer is specifically for the disciples. But something we're also told in verse 20 is that this prayer extends from not just the disciples that were presently with Jesus, but also to future disciples that would follow Jesus, which includes those of us who have put our trust in him. Verse 20, we're told this, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of those specific 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this is making very clear. I'm not just praying for these guys. Remember, you know, Judas is gone and he's the one who actually doesn't believe. There's 11 there with him. These aren't the only ones I'm praying. I'm praying for all the disciples in the future who are going to believe in me through the word of those who go out into this world and preach the gospel. And so we are a part of that. And so these prayers that Jesus prays and the specific things that he asks for aren't just for them, but they're for us as well, which hopefully will bring us some encouragement. So let's get to these things that specifically Jesus prays, these two things that he asked the Father for. The first thing that Jesus asked for his disciples are in verses 11 through 16. It says this, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them, in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus starts his request here with a, a statement that he is no longer going to be in the world, but his disciples will be. 
And as I mentioned at the beginning, that's kind of at the heart of what Jesus is sharing here, this recognition that he's about to depart and they're going to stay and he has a calling for them and he has a mission for them. And so what he prays is in light of that reality, they're going to be here, I won't be. And so, Father, I need you to do these things for them because they're going to need this in order to fulfill the calling I have for them in the world. And the first thing that Jesus is going to ask is that the Father would keep them. Now, in these verses, Jesus is going to share the Father is going to keep them through something, in something, and from something. And so the first thing that he reveals here is that the Father is going to keep them through his name. He says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Now, this Greek word translated keep means to guard, carefully attend, to hold fast, to take care of. And so Jesus is when he's saying, hey, Father, I want you to keep the disciples. I want you to guard them. I want you to hold fast to them. I want you to carefully attend to them. And Jesus is asking the Father to do this through the name of the Father. And as I already mentioned, this is something that is important because when Jesus speaks of the Father's name, it's associated with his character, with his authority, with his power, with who he is. And so he's saying, with all that you are, Father, I want you to keep these disciples. And that's the same way in which Jesus kept the disciples when he was here on this earth for the three years that they were under his care. He says in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So while Jesus was on the earth and he had those disciples under his care, he kept them, he guarded them, he held them tight to himself and took care of them. He did it through the name of the Father, that character and authority and a power that he was possessing here on this earth. And also notice that Jesus didn't keep people against their will. He only kept those who actually believed in him. He only kept those who wanted to be kept because there was one of the 12 who didn't want to be kept. The one who never believed. The one who's now at this point in time betraying him because Judas has just left the upper room and he's going to betray. He says, hey, none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Speaking of Judas himself. So I've kept them except the one who didn't want to be kept. And he I didn't force to be kept. And that's something we need to understand about God. He's not going to force us to believe. He's not going to force us to be in a relationship. He's not going to keep us in something that we don't want to be kept in. And so Judas, who never believed, was one who was never kept. And now Jesus is asking the Father to continue to keep the disciples. I've done it for the last three years, Father. Now I want you, as I'm coming back to you, to continue that work of keeping them through your name, through the character, authority, and power that you possess. Keep these disciples. Now, something important to understand is the only way the disciples of Jesus can be kept is through the character, authority, and power of God. David Gusick wrote this. Jesus didn't pray, keep through an angel, or keep through a church leader, or keep through their own effort. The work of keeping a believer is so significant that it takes the name of God, the whole character and authority of God. You know, the only way that you and I are going to be kept in this such important way is through God's power, through God's authority, through who God is. You can't do it in yourself. You can't look to someone else. There's only one who can keep you, and that is God himself through his character, authority, and power. 
And the wonderful news for you and I is that God is there to do that for us. That Jesus has specifically, sorry, prayed that for us that, hey, God would keep you and he would keep me in his character, authority, and power. We don't have to hold fast ourselves. We don't have to guard ourselves in that way that God the Father is the one who ultimately we rely upon to do that. So Jesus starts off asking the Father to keep his disciples through the Father's name. And now he's going to transition to asking the Father to keep them in two very important things. The first thing that he prays that they would keep them in is in verse 11. It says this, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. The first thing that Jesus asked the Father to keep the disciples in is to keep them in unity. He wants the disciples to be one, just as he and the Father are one. He wants the disciples to have that unified relationship, just like the Father and the Son have that unified relationship relationship. Now, something very important to understand about the oneness and the unity that we possess as followers of Jesus Christ is it's all centered in Christ. He is the reason for it all. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you were baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse makes very clear, hey, the unity that we have, even though we're diverse, the oneness we have, even though we're diverse, all comes back to the fact that we are in Christ. And the only way you're in Christ is if you have put your trust in Christ. And so for those who have put their trust in Christ, there's an automatic oneness, unity that comes because of being in Him. Ephesians 4 Three through six says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. As you can see in this verse, the word one is seen over and over again. And the word one is speaking of this unity this oneness that believers in Jesus have and what they ultimately share in common that brings this unity, that brings this oneness. In Jesus, we share one body, the body of Christ, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. These are the things that when you accept Christ, you are entering into and you all receive together. They unify us together. You see, all of us are a part of the body of Christ. We all have the Spirit of God now dwelling in us. We all have the hope of heaven. We all have only one Lord, Jesus Christ. We have the same faith. We have the same work of God for us. We all have the same baptism in the Christ, the same Father. So as Christians, these are the things that unify us together. These are the things that bring that oneness. And the wonderful thing about this unity is that you can be unified and diverse at the same time. Yeah, there's kind of this concept that in order to be unified, often we think, well, we have to be the same as someone else. And But the reality is, with Christianity, there can be great diversity, and yet the unity comes. You know, you could be of uh, a completely different race, nationality, social status, gender. Why? Because none of those things are what give us our unity. 
Our unity is in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. So all those things that, that we're, we're different in are not the things that unify us together. The unity comes through Jesus and what he's done for us. So Jesus is asking that the Father would keep his disciples unified, to keep his disciples as one. But now as we see in Hebrew, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, there's also this challenge for us. Like the Father's keeping us in this, but here in Ephesians it says, you know, we also have a role to try to keep ourselves in this unified relationship with other believers. And something important to note is that we are being commanded to keep the unity that God has created in Jesus. We are not being commanded to create unity ourselves. And that's something that's very important. God says, here it is. I've created it. Just keep it. You don't create the unity. You keep the unity that I have already created. And the reason I point this out is because in the church world today, there are several movements that are saying, hey, we're creating unity within the church instead of keeping the unity that God has already established, that God has already created in Christ. Instead of trying to keep the unity that we already have as believers, they're really trying to create a different unity that is not centered on what we have in Christ. And because the word unity is used, there are a lot of believers who think, well, it must be great. I mean, unity is a good thing. The Bible talks about it. Well, unity under you know, who we are in Christ is great, but unity under something else, you know, that's not good at all. And some of these movements are, are saying, you know, let's unify with other false religions. And they're seeking to do that. Or let's unify with things that are just unbiblical. And since we have the word unity, oh, let's do it. And there's not, sadly, some Christians who are falling into that trap of saying, well, if it's unity, it's good. No, we don't create unity. All we do is keep the unity that God has already created for us in Christ. And when we do that, it is a wonderful blessing. And the wonderful thing is the Father is there to help keep that because we often struggle doing that ourselves. So the first thing that Jesus asked the Father to keep his disciples in is unity. The second thing he's going to ask the Father to keep the disciples in is in verse 13. He says this, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The second thing that Jesus asked the Father to keep the disciples in is in his joy. You know, Jesus was one of the most joyful people there were. He lived a life of fulfillment, a life full of joy. And there were really two sources for Jesus' joy. The most significant and important one was his relationship with the Father. His relationship with the Father is what brought such great joy to his life. But also the other thing was the fulfillment of what the Father had given him to do. Living the life that the Father gave him to live in this world brought great joy to Jesus. Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 2, reveals this joy that Jesus had through something that maybe you would think, well, how can you have joy in that? Notice what it says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that we're told, for the joy that was set before Jesus. What joy was set before Jesus? The cross was the joy. How could you have joy in the cross? All that pain, all that suffering, because Jesus knew what the cross would fulfill. 
Jesus knew that it was only through the cross that he could have a relationship with you and a relationship with me. He knew that only through the cross could salvation come to mankind. The cross was the culmination of all his work. He knew the cross would do what only the cross could do and bring that relationship that was broken in the garden back to mankind and God. And so that joy of the cross and fulfilling the work of the Father was something that brought Jesus great joy. And now Jesus is asking that the Father would ultimately enable His disciples to have that joy fulfilled in themselves. Father, I want my disciples to have the joy of a relationship with you like I do. I want my disciples to have the joy of fulfilling the calling and commandments that you have given to them in their life. Because Jesus recognized that is the greatest joy. That relationship and following the Father in this world brings greater joy than anything else. And he is praying that the disciples would experience that joy. And that's something so important for us to understand. There's no greater joy in our lives than that relationship we have with God and actually fulfilling what God has commanded and called us to do. And unfortunately, in the world today, you know, a lot of Christians get caught up with what the world is saying that's going to bring you joy, that's going to bring you fulfillment. And we start living for those things and we just, oh, this is empty. This doesn't bring what I want. Yeah, because it never will. There's only one thing that truly will bring that fulfillment and joy in your life. And that is living for what God has called you to do and commanded you to do and living it within a sweet, intimate relationship with him. And we can see that not just in a general sense, but even in specific areas. You know, if you want a joyful, fulfilled marriage, invest in your relationship with God and do what God has commanded and called you to do as a husband or a wife. If you do that, you're going to have a joyful, fulfilled marriage. If you want a joyful, fulfilled family, once again, invest in that relationship with God and then also do what God has commanded you to do, what He has called you to do as a, as a, a father, as a, a wife or a mother or as a child. If you want a joyful and fulfilling relationship, invest first in your relationship with God and then also, what has God commanded us to do? Well, love one another as Jesus loved you. You want to do that? You're going to see wonderful relationships in your life. David Guzik wrote this, If Jesus was so concerned for joy among His disciples that He prayed for it, we can know that He's also concerned that we have joy. God's purpose is to multiply joy in our lives, not to subtract it. The world, the flesh, and the devil will tell us something different, but God wants joy fulfilled in our lives. You know, the lie that we're constantly told is, oh, God, you know, he just wants to, to kind of ruin your life. And if you follow him, he's just going to, you know, lead you to doing things that are just so miserable and hard and whatever. And it's like, no, God's heart for us is I want you to have a fulfilled, joyful life. That's my desire. And I know that if you have a deep relationship with me and you do what I call you to do, that's going to be the result in your life. Jesus wants that for us. He experienced that himself, and now he's praying that for those of us who are his disciples, we would also have that joy based on the relationship with the Father and living what the Father has called us to do. So Jesus starts off asking the Father to keep his disciples through the Father's name and that character, authority, and power. Then he asks them to keep them in unity and in joy. 
And now he's going to ask the father to keep his disciples from something that would be problematic to them. Verses 14 through 16. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus understood what the disciples were going to face when he left. I mean, he faced these things when he was here on this earth. He knew what they were going to encounter. He knew the difficult struggles that they would have as they sought to live for him and reach the world for him. He recognized the disciples would be hated. Why would they be hated? Because they're not of this world. Just like Jesus was hated because he's not of this world. And that's something important to understand about Jesus. He's not of this world. He's of heaven. He left heaven to come to this world, but he's not of it. He's of heaven. And the wonderful thing for us is, guess what? When we put our trust in Jesus, we are no longer of this world. We are now of heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you accepted Jesus, your citizenship went from being a citizen of this earth to being a citizen of heaven. This change transpired immediately when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is no longer my home. My home is now in heaven. I'm just a pilgrim, a sojourner passing through because I'm heading to my true home because this is no longer it. I'm no longer going to live for this. I'm no longer going to live for this world and the things that this world offers because this world is not my home. I'm no longer a citizen here. I'm living for something greater. I'm living for something more important. I'm living for heaven because that is where my true home exists and that is where I am now a citizen. But you know what? Even though we're no longer of this world, notice what Jesus does not pray for his disciples then and us today in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Hey, wait a second. You know, this world's not our home. We're citizens of heaven. But Jesus says, I don't pray that you would remove them. I want them in this world for a reason. I want them in this world to reach those who are lost, to reach those in this world who still don't know me. I'm keeping them in this world because I have a mission for them. I have a calling for them. There's a purpose for them staying here in this world. And so even though the world's going to hate them because they're not of this world anymore, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world. And understand that because there's a lot of prayers that we sometimes pray. Lord, just get me out of here. Elisha prayed that prayer. Moses prayed that prayer. Job prayed that prayer. Guess what? God didn't answer that prayer. He never took them out. He helped them get through. He helped them continue on. He helped them fulfill what he called them to do, but he didn't say, all right, come on, come to heaven. You can get out of here because that's not his heart's desire. He wants to keep us here for the reason that he has us in this world. We live in this world ultimately in order to impact the world for Jesus. But in order for us to do that, while we live in this world, we can't have this world live in us. Because when that happens, the world starts impacting us for Satan instead of us impacting the world for Christ. We're to be like a ship. A ship is meant to be in the ocean, but when the ocean gets in the ship, the ship sinks and it gets destroyed. We're meant to be in this world, but not of the world, not to become like the world, not to live like the world and pursue the things the world lives for. 
We live here, but we live here living for Jesus, impacting a world that's dark in darkness with the light of Christ, impacting a world that is lost by revealing who their Savior is. So Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. But then he goes on to say, there is something I want you to keep them from. Don't, don't, don't pull them out of the world, but there's something in the world that I want you to keep them from. Notice what he says, that you should keep them from the evil one. The evil one is speaking about Satan, whom the Bible says is the ruler of this world. So the thing that Jesus wants the disciples to be kept from is Satan, the ruler of this world. And when you put your trust in Jesus, guess what? Something happens that maybe you're not too pleased with. You now are in a spiritual battle and your enemy is Satan, principalities, powers, demonic forces. You now, that moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you went from being in Satan's camp to being his enemy. And now that you're his enemy, you are his target. He wants to destroy your life. And there is a spiritual battle that you and I face on a daily basis. And so Jesus doesn't pray that we'd be taken out of the world. He doesn't pray that we'd be taken out of the spiritual battle. What does he pray? That the Father would keep us from Satan. And remember that word keep, one of the, the, the definitions of that was to guard, to protect. Hey, Father, protect them. I know that the enemy's coming. There's a spiritual battle. They're going to be in this world, uh, and the ruler of this world is going to seek to destroy them. And so my prayer is that you would keep them from Satan, that you would protect them from his attacks against them. And you know, Ephesians 6 gives us this wonderful reality of the spiritual armor that God has given to us in order to help protect us from the enemy and from his, you know, wicked ways and his schemes and what he's trying to do to destroy our lives. We have the protection in what God has given us. You see, Jesus' heart is that we would stay in the world and reach it for him. But as we do that, that he is there, the Father is there to bring the protection we need to continue to reach the world in the midst of the attacks that we receive from the enemy. I think a great verse that describes what Jesus wants from us is Philippians 2.15. It says this, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And when you look at the world today, a great definition of the world is a crooked and perverse generation. That's the world we live in. And this verse is challenging that as you live in this world that is crooked and this world that is perverse, that we would become the blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of this world and that we would live in such a way that we would shine as lights to this world. Because this world is crooked and it's perverse and it's messed up. It's in darkness and Satan is trying to keep it in darkness. And as we live for Christ, we shine the light of Christ so that this world that is in darkness can see the light of Christ and come to the knowledge of the gospel and be set free. So the first thing that Jesus asked the Father to do for the disciples then and for the disciples now is to keep us, keep us through the Father's name, His authority, His power, Keep us in unity, keep us in his joy, and keep us from Satan. The second thing that Jesus asked the Father to do for for the disciples then and now is in verses 17 through 19. It says this, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. 
The second thing that Jesus asked the Father to do is, I need you to sanctify the disciples. The Greek word translated sanctify means to set apart from sin, from the sinful things of the world, and set apart to God. So the sanctification process is a twofold process. There's something that you're set apart from the world and the things of the world, the sinful things of the world, and something you're set apart to, which is God. And it's not just a one thing. You know, well, I'll just be set apart from the world. Well, that's a good starting point, but you also need to be set apart to God, to live for Him, to be like Him. So in the sanctification process, as you're set apart from the world, guess what? You start to become less like the world. You think less like it. You act less like it. You speak less like it. And as you're set apart to God, you start to become more like Jesus. You think more like Jesus. You act more like Jesus. You speak more like Jesus. And the reality is right now, each one of us who are believers in Jesus, we are in this sanctification process. And this process is going to continue to the day that we die. That we're going to be continually set apart from the world and set apart to God. Becoming less like the world and more like Jesus. Now an important question to ask is, what is it that God uses to sanctify us? You know, how is it that God sets us apart from the sin of the world and the sinful things that tempt us and, and set us apart to God, to himself, to living for him? What's the main thing that he uses in order to help that change take place in our lives? Well, as Jesus prays his prayer, he reveals the main thing that God uses in the sanctification process to help us be set apart from the world and set apart to himself. Notice what Jesus Ask the Father to sanctify the disciples by. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knows, hey, each one of my disciples need to be sanctified. That's an essential thing for them as they're living in this world that's seeking to corrupt them, to tempt them, to destroy them. There is a continual sanctification process where they need to be set apart from this sinful world and set apart to God And the way that they're going to be doing that most efficiently, the thing that's going to help them best, is the truth of God's Word. So Jesus is asking that they would be sanctified by the truth of God's Word. You know, if you want to be set apart from the things of the world and set apart to God, really the best thing that you can do to help in that process is spend time in God's Word on a daily basis. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you don't want to be conformed to become like the world, but instead you want to be transformed to be like Jesus Christ, well, that process, a huge portion of that, takes place in the renewing of your mind. Because guess what? Before you act, you have to think. Before you do things, ultimately it starts in your mind. You know, a lot of those things that, that, that take place, you know, that's been festering in the mind, the lust, you know, the desires, the whatever. It starts here and then it comes to action. And so really the battleground starts in the mind. There's a renewal that needs to take place in our mind so that we can be transformed, not only in our mind, but also in our actions as well. And the best thing to transform your mind is the Word of God. I guarantee you that if you spend time in God's Word every day, there's going to be a result that's going to be wonderful. You're going to become less like the world and more like Jesus. 
You will be set apart from the things of the world, the desires of the world, the temptations of the world, and you're going to become more like Jesus Christ. But I can also guarantee you something else. You neglect time in God's word, you're going to become more like the world and less like Jesus. It's an essential reality. You don't spend time in the thing that's going to best enable you to change, to reveal what needs to change, to show you how to change and what God has for you. You don't spend time in that. You're just going to become more like the world you live in and less like the Savior that's seeking to change you. Now, something interesting to note is Verse 17, verse 19, Jesus is speaking of being sanctified by the truth of God's word. But sandwiched between those is verse 18. So in this mindset of the need for being sanctified by the word, Jesus says this, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And so we see this heart of, you know, the world again. Each time Jesus is praying, he's bringing it back to this reality of recognizing, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm sending them sending them into the world to impact the world and reach the world. But I think it's important that it's connected with sanctification. That is Jesus saying, I want them in the world, not a part of it, not living like the world. I want them set apart, but I also want them set apart to something. Not just generally to God, but to a mission, to what I have for them. I have a specific calling for their life. I want them set apart and actually doing that, not just dwelling in this earth until they die, not just living here and making no impact, that I have a calling, I have a command for them, and I want them to be living that life, which is the life that we already looked at that brings that joy, that life that brings that fulfillment, that we live the life, the mission that God has given. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Christ was the great missionary, the Messiah, the sent one. We are minor missionaries sent out into the world to accomplish the Father's will and purpose. You know, Jesus came to this world. He came as a missionary. He came to reach the world. He's saying, as I send you out, that's ultimately my call as well. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Share with them what I came to this world to accomplish, what I came to this world to do. You are my representatives now. You are my ambassadors now. I'm not going to be here. I need someone representing me as I go back to the Father, and it's my disciples who I'm calling to be that representative, to be that light, to be that salt, to go into the world and reach it for me. And so Jesus, recognizing what a difficult task that is, recognizing what he's ultimately leaving the disciples to do. He comes to the Father and he says, Father, there are two things that my disciples need. If they're going to accomplish this call, if they're going to accomplish this great commission to go in all the world and preach the gospel, then you need to do two things. First, you need to keep them through your name, your character, your authority, your power. Keep them unified together because as they're you know, uh, divided, they will not be you know, very effective. Keep them in my joy. Help them recognize that living for me and doing these things brings the greatest fulfillment and joy. Keep them from Satan who would seek to hinder and destroy the work that I want them to accomplish here on this earth. And second, sanctify them by the truth of your word. Help them to be those who love your word, who are transformed by your word, who allow the word to keep us from living for the things of this world and instead living for the things of God. Jesus wants to use you. He wants to use you in wonderful ways that are going to bring glory to God and that are going to impact this world for Christ. But he knows for that to happen, the Father has to keep you. The Father has to sanctify you. And so he's prayed that prayer 
I believe he continues to pray that prayer for you, for me, because he realizes how difficult it is. Bible tells us he was tempted in all the ways that we were, yet without sin. He knows what you're going through. He knows how hard it is. He knows how brutal the world can be. They killed him. He knows what it's like to have the world as your enemy. He knows what persecution is. He knows what difficulties are. He, he knows the struggles that we deal with. He's fully aware of that, and he's praying for us because he knows what we're going through and what it's going to take for us to fulfill what he's called us to do. And the great thing is we're not alone. We have him. We have his spirit. We have him praying for us. But you know what? There's also the wonderful truth. We have each other. We're together in this. And that's why he says, you know what? I want them to be one like you and I are one. Because if they do this together, they will be successful. But if they try to do it on their own, they're going to fail. But this is a wonderful calling. And I hope you're encouraged by the reality that Jesus is praying for you. You need to be kept. I need to be kept. You need to be sanctified. I need to be sanctified. And he's the one who's going to keep praying and keep giving us what we need so that we can accomplish what he's called us to do. Let's pray.